I'll ask you this morning as we turn our thoughts to Ephesians 5, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that whatever you're facing, He will hold you fast in your despair, in your discouragement, even in your discontentment, in your doubts? Do you believe that He will hold you? That's the message of the gospel that Jesus came to bring us not only forgiveness, but help and to hold us. Talking on a subject this morning that much pain and much heartache are associated with. When we vow as members and join this church, we vow to strive to promote the purity and peace of God's church. And yet, all too often, what grows lust and greed is the soil of discontentment. We're talking about lust and greed and its destructive seeds that grow in our lives. But I want you to know that the gospel does deliver us from even deception and from brokenness. Purity is God's good news to us. To save us from ourselves, I will begin by reminding you of just a couple of things. Our text is handling a difficult subject, but we will handle it with proper decorum and discretion. I sent a separate email first to parents of elementary school and parents of high schoolers, preparing them for the sermon and what words the text brings up and the topics. But also know that this topic brings with it much pain, much shame, much anger, and much hurt from betrayal and from the devastation of this sin. Let's pray right now and ask God to prepare us to hear his word. Lord, we know the gospel is your cure to heal the sinful cravings of our heart. All too often we know that instead of being filled with thankfulness, Our hearts are discontent. We're unable to reconcile and understand what's come into our lives. Would you heal us? Would you hold us? Would you speak to us this morning? Teach us by your word. Fill us with the light of hope. And if there's anyone here that's listening online or present in the sanctuary or St. Andrew's Hall or on our campus, that doesn't have that assurance that you're holding them, may today be the day of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, we covered verses 1 and 2 last week, and as you know if you've been with us, we work our way through books of the Bible. The text we'll primarily focus on is verses 3 through 5, but it's helpful to see verses 1 through 8 as the context. Be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity vulgar or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, 
but rather your hearts and your speech and your life should be full of thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Nearly 50% of the citizens of Mexico live in extreme poverty. In the city of Mexico, or in Mexico City, there's a group of homeless families that live on a garbage dump. They're called dump dwellers. This is Porto Pañete, over 70 million tons of waste are buried in that landfill and nearly three ton, uh, three, uh, 12,000 tons of waste are added every day to the landfill. Families live on this garbage dump and they pilfer materials, they try to gather what they need for shelter as well as for food. Many years ago, I visited Mexico City on a mission trip. I spent the summer helping Mission to the World in a church planting effort. And we took 30 college students down to work with university students in Mexico for the summer. We visited this place and we visited World Vision's ministry that was taking place at a garbage dump. I'll tell you, the sight was shocking, as you can imagine, seeing children pulling for food in the midst of that garbage. I was not prepared for the smell. It was so nauseating. Immediately, we all began to gag. My eyes began to water, and I felt the acrid fumes of poisonous gases burning my eyes. That image has never left me. The word that I would use to describe that event was disturbing. It was disturbing to see the filth and it was disturbing to see humans made in the image of God reduced to scavengers. Well, Paul, when he came to Athens in Acts 17, we're told, was disturbed. It was a city full of idols, worship practices that mixed mysticism and vulgarity and dehumanizing sexual activities. It was taking place right in the marketplace. This too was the city of Ephesus, center of major Roman port there, and the temple of Artemis was in the center of the city. In the temple of Artemis they worshiped Diana, the fertility goddess, and there was idols of perverted art all around in the marketplace, practices of mystical superstition, and degrading perversion, including temple prostitution. That was the normal experience of the day. I'm sure the smell would have been nauseating. I'm sure the poisonous fumes would be difficult to view. Disturbing, I would imagine, 
but not to some of these Ephesian Christians involved in the marketplace and pagan rituals, just like a frog in a kettle. They did commerce, they bought, they sold, they even participated in some of these practices. They were numb. They were callous. They fit right in to pagan lifestyles. And yet, Paul said, they should be shocked. They should be disturbed. It's not unlike our day, is it? We live in a country, in a culture where we're not shocked, where we're numb, where we're passe, and even in the church where we participate. We're told to express ourselves, to enjoy ourselves, to explore our sexual pleasures, and anyone who says differently is viewed as prudish or even evil. Paul says, this is good news. Put off impurity. Put on purity. Why is this good news? We've been working through from Ephesians 4.17 to this place in Ephesians 5, and we've seen Paul describing gospel commandments. It's as if he's working through the Ten Commandments for gospel living. Here he's talking about the seventh commandment, which is not to commit adultery. Now, Calvin talked about the three uses of the law. The law is for us, first, as a mirror to show us our need for grace. It shows us our sinfulness. The law also is, has civil purposes, to restrain evil in the culture around us. But here's the third use of the law. The law is to bring light, to guide us to guide us to live out of the grace that God has given us in purity. We must put off impurity, the gospel tells us, because impurity dims, it divides, and it destroys. On Tuesday night at our session meeting, I asked the elders to pray for me about this text and about this sermon. One elder texted me this quote that I'd heard many years ago, goes like this, sin will take you farther than you plan to go. Sin will keep you there longer than you plan to stay. And sin will cost you more than you are prepared to pay. That's what Paul's telling the Ephesians, the good news, that we're to put off impurity because it dims. Notice in verse 3a, the word but connects what Paul has already said, we're dearly beloved children and we're to walk in love. But, he says, you're not walking in the light. He says that we're walking in impurity. And impurity dims our vision of God. Impurity dims our view of God's love. Impurity dims our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's presence. Impurity dulls our hearts. It dims our desire for God. Many of you know that I devour anything that C.S. Lewis has written. I read it over and over again. I'm so struck by his vivid descriptions of sanctification in The Great Divorce and Until We Have Faces. He's really describing sanctification as restoring of our humanity, sinful behaviors 
cause us to lose our true selves, who God has made us to be in Christ. In Adam, we destroy. In Christ, we become truly who we are in his image. But that leaves us having to deal with our discontentment. Do you see that the problem with lust and greed and idolatry is those seeds of sin grow in the soil of discontentment? And all too often, we rationalize our discontentment. But discontentment leads to division because it leads to lust and to greed. Verse 3 says, There must not be any impurity among you fitting for God's holy people. Paul says that this kind of impurity doesn't fit in with what God's doing for the family. It divides us. And which of us has not seen how adultery divides families, divides friendships, divides churches? A spouse who hides and later is discovered to be addicted to to pornography divides the trust in the family with the other spouse. Affairs that are hidden and then uncovered divide trust and community. Paul has just described agape love as self-sacrifice. But he says, but lust is self-indulgence. In contrast to self-sacrifice, when we give in to discontentment and we rationalize lust and greed, it divides now, the word Paul uses here, it's a s- several sets of words, is the word for sexual immorality. Its actual word is pornea. We use that word or form of it in describing pornography. He also uses the word impurity or vulgarity. And he says that this affects not only our behaviors, but all, also our speech. What Paul is getting at here is he's talking about all forms of uncleanness. Romans would have understood that word pornea just to be speaking of prostitution. And while it does include prostitution, Paul's linking it with these other words to tell us all forms of sexual impurity is unclean and is not to be known or found among the people of God. Now, I must say a word about pornography here. This problem is an epidemic in our day, as you all know. It dims, it divides, it destroys families and lives. It rewires our brains, those powerful images that are so destructive. And it destroys everything that we hold sacred. It's child abuse. Often those that are involved in the industry are children that have been taken as slaves. It's degrading to women as well as to men. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Pornography is a problem in the world, but I want you to hear today it's a problem in the church. Pornography is a problem among adults. Parents, it's a problem among teens and now among young children. Pornography is a problem for men, and the statistics say that it's equally a problem for women. Do not be naive. Impurity dims, 
our vision, divides our hearts, and destroys ourselves. Parents, if you give a nine-year-old a screen and let them freely explore, that's like putting a stack of dirty magazines under the bed and saying, don't look under the bed. You see, it will dim, it will divide, and it will destroy. Now, Paul connects the word greed here. Is he saying that greed also is contributing to the sin of impurity? Yes, he is, but I think what Paul is trying to say here is that sexual sin activates all kinds of sins. It's not an isolated problem. You could say sexual sins are crimes against the image of God in us. It activates lying and stealing and idol worship and other dehumanizing activities. I think this is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, where he says, flee sexual immorality. For all other sins are sins outside the body. But sexual immorality is sin against one's own body. I think he's saying here that that particular sin activates all types of sins. And we've seen that in our day. But Paul also says that judgment and separation from God is the most destructive casualty of impurity. Here in verse 5 he says, Be sure of this, no immoral, impure, or greedy person such a man is an idolater, is disobedient and accountable to God, and the wrath of God shall come upon him. Now, the parallel passage in Corinthians for this passage is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Let me read this to you. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Paul is saying that we no longer are identified by our former behavior. We're now in Christ. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. It doesn't mean that we still do not struggle with all of these kinds of sins. He mentions homosexuality here. That is the sin of lust. The same struggle that one would struggle with in a heterosexual relationship. Paul says that when Christ changes you, he frees you from the enslavement of these behaviors. Let me make this clear. This doesn't mean that sexuality in itself is dirty or unclean. God created us male and female, and he made us sexual creatures. But sex is a gift from God and is beautiful to be enjoyed as a bond between a married man and a married woman. It's such a powerful gift. It's only to be shared in that context. Sexual intimacy is to be cherished like a beautiful rose, but it's to be handled with care 
mishandling this beautiful gift is destructive. I traveled for my doctoral work to California many times, and I talked to many friends in California about the devastating effect of wildfires. Of course, some had their houses burned in their neighborhoods. Some complained about the lack of land management. Others talked about the fear of these fires burning and destroying their homes. They also talked about the cleanup and how devastating the destruction was. These images that Paul's talking about are like a fire. That fire, though we find usefulness for warmth when it's in the stove or if it's in the fireplace, without boundaries is destructive. And we don't have control of the effects. Our house has a gas stove. And you can add fuel to that flame and the, and the flame will rise. It will increase. What Paul is saying here is that you've got to starve improper desires. You've got to turn down the fuel and don't fuel those things that will lead you to a kind of discontentment where you destroy your own selves. All sin is idolatry. It's preferring anything more than God. And we all do commit adultery every day. You might say, Mike, I don't struggle with sexual sin. It's not part of the besetting sins that I deal with. But what about discontentment? Paul ties greed with uh, the sin of idolatry as well. Some of you think about money too much. You're driven for making more money, and it fuels discontentment. Some of you look at Pinterest or Wayfair too much. It fuels your discontentment. You have a nice house, but you're not happy with what you have. Some of you think about a promotion or even fear losing your job too much. It fuels discontentment. Some of you think what it would be like to be married to someone else. And it fuels discontentment. Some of you wonder what it would be like to be married to your friend's husband. And it fuels discontentment. Some of you have secrets and desires that you've not shared with your spouse. No one that loves you knows about these things. And it fuels discontentment. Paul is saying here, you must stop fueling discontentment. It's the soil that lust and greed grows. Remind you again, sin will take you farther than you plan to go. It'll keep you there longer than you plan to stay. And it will cost you more than you were planned to give. Now often, when I give a relationship seminar to college students, I speak about purity as this rose. You see, this beautiful rose is a gift and yet it's so delicate. If I began to treat this rose casually and callously, what I end up doing is destroying myself. I end up giving my gift the gift of destruction. And Paul says, put off impurity. But he does say, put on purity. And what is the pathway of putting on purity. Paul says it's cultivating 
thankfulness. Now, when you hear that, think about the powerful, destructive power of lust and greed. Think about how lust and greed enslave us and hold us captive. And Paul says, how do you put off impurity? He says, you put on thankfulness. Doesn't sound very powerful, does it? But it is powerful. Thankfulness is the cure to idolatry. Think about how Paul constantly talks about thankfulness in the context of worship. We'll get to Ephesians 5 in a few weeks where he says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart with all thankfulness. He says the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul is connecting thankfulness as the antithesis to discontentment and idolatry. And at first you might think that that's really not a fair uh, association, that maybe something more uh, strength uh, binding and more, more powerful uh, is necessary to undo the power of discontentment. But what is thankfulness? It's appreciating God for who He is in the appropriate mental and emotional response. And discontentment is appreciating something else or some, someone else. Idolatry is over-appreciating something that was never to be longed for in that way. As I read this passage, it struck me again, finally, what Romans 1 was talking about. Now, I've read Romans 1 many times, and it's speaking about the creature worshiping creation rather than worshiping the creator. But when describing these idolaters, Paul says, they did not give glory to God or they did not give thanks. And it hit me. That's what he's talking about there. Thankfulness will dispel discontentment, which is the soil that all idolatry grows. Just think about that. If we woke up every morning, we fell to our knees. God, thank you. I'm alive. You've taken me through the night. And then I put on my clothes and I said, thank you, God, for providing for me. That I have what I need to serve others and my family. I ate breakfast and I had to thank God that he has he's provided me with abundance. I drive to work. Thank you for a job. I come home and I see my children and I hug them and I thank them. Even in my struggles, I thank God that I'm not alone. I have the body of Christ and every week I come to the Lord's Day to be reminded life is about the abundance of grace that fills my heart with thankfulness. If I live that way, it would free me from discontent. It would help me to see what God has for my life today. It would make me a person of purity. So what about you? Are you giving in to discontentment? If you are, that discontentment is setting the soil for idolatry to grow. But Paul also says that that thankfulness 
should keep us alert. Notice that he says, do not be deceived by those who offer empty words. We're to live alert lives. You see, the problem with deception, it's so deceptive. We don't see it coming. And so we feel that we are thankful people. But yet Paul says, be alert. Don't rationalize. Small compromises open the doors for deception. Our weather system has the watch system and the warning system. The watch system says that the conditions are conducive for a storm to grow. The warning system says a storm has been spotted. Paul says here, parents, be alert. Watch what you're doing. Watch your self-indulgence. Time for a little joke to, to lighten up the moment. A doctor comes in, or a patient comes to the office and he yells to the doctor, 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 I've broke my arm in two places. The doctor looks up and says, stay out of those two places. Paul's saying, be alert. Stay out of those two places, those places that will lead to impurity in your life. Non-married people, be alert. Loneliness is powerful in your life. It will lead to compromises. Compassionate people who find yourself as a rescue are always showing compassion to needy people. Be alert. You could compromise. But Paul also says that this thankfulness is like an inheritance. It's rich. He contrasts the wrath of God with the inheritance that we have. Do you think of purity as a rich inheritance? Or do you think of it as a burden? As a burden that keeps you from what you really long for? Purity gives us more hope, more joy, and more resources to battle discontentment in our lives. And then he says this thankfulness will lead us to be children of light. But we, though we will minister to those who are in darkness, we will not be like the darkness. We'll live with distinctiveness. It says that you can't have partakers and partners with unbelievers. You can't be best buddies and friends with those who participate in the deeds of darkness. We must separate ourselves or discontentment will creep in. So let me close by asking you this question. Where is discontentment creeping in to your life? Have you experienced the shame and the guilt of sin? Well, I want you to know the Bible tells us that God promises healing. He promises to take our empty and broken lives and put it back into something that's beautiful. Are you in need for the reminder that God not only forgives, but God heals. Listen to these words. The gospel is victory for the sufferer, hope for the despairing. The gospel is rest for the weary. It's savior for the sinner. It's restorer of the impure. It's to free us from guilt and shame. Have you been freed by the touch of the gospel? Let me speak to a few groups here in closing. First two, young adults. Cohabitation and casual sexual practices will dim, divide, and destroy. The statistics say that most young adults take a casual approach to sleeping with people who are not their spouses. 
The Bible says this is sinful. And in fact, the statistics say that on average, a young adult, after four formal dates with a person, is sleeping together with that person. On authority of God's word, I say to you to turn from that thinking because it will lead to a destructive outcome in your life. If you're married to someone who has committed adultery, I want you to know that adultery is grounds for divorce, but I also want you to know that some marriages in this church have been restored even after one party has committed adultery. There is hope in the gospel, and you don't need to assume that your marriage cannot be restored. It's a hard road. The humility and the patience that it takes is very difficult, but I want you to know that God can and will restore. Now to the parents, just a few things. Minimize screen time for all your children. I think the rule should be whatever screen time that your children have, you should allow for less screen time. And don't apologize for being your children's parents. You're not simply their friends, you're their only authority. God holds you accountable for the freedoms that you allow for your children. And though you don't like to hear this, children, I want you to know your parents love you deeply. And their concern is that you don't destroy your future, that you don't dim your relationship with God. Parents, stay on the alert. We told our children that we've told our friends and our school teachers to tell us whenever they see our children acting out. And we told our children, we pray that God will catch you when you do something evil. Why? Because we love them. We want them to be protected from being destroyed. But parents, the watch light is always on. Warning, warning. You need to not compromise. To those that are struggling, I will say, bring your struggle into the light. I was at a men's gathering here recently, and over 100 men were there, and a man stood up and he talked about his battle with pornography. Confessing it to his wife was one of his hardest things he'd ever done, and talking to his friends about needing help and the years that he's worked, but he confessed that he was free from that addiction. And he told all of those men, bring it into the light. Talk to a friend. Come see a pastor. Let us know. Where are you fueling impure fires? In a church our large, a church this large, we know that pornography is prevalent throughout even this congregation. We pray that you'll bring those sins to light. And then walk in the light. This speaks of proactive thankfulness. One example I'll give you, when I was first married, I went to a conference where a speaker who had been close to Gordon McDonald shared about Gordon McDonald's infidelity. Gordon McDonald was the pastor of Grace Chapel in Lexington, Massachusetts. He was one of my heroes, and Gordon McDonald began to counsel a woman, a member of his church, that led to infidelity. And at this conference, the speaker gave out these little sheets of paper. 
called Consequences of a Moral Tumble. I won't read it to you. If you want a copy, see me afterwards. I have copies. I wasn't struggling in my marriage. I was not feeling tempted in any particular way. But I made a commitment. This was going to go with me every day of my life. Every day that I traveled out of town, I read Consequences of a Moral Tumble. Because I'm thankful for my wife. I love my family. I'm thankful that God has given me the privilege of ministry. Do not be deceived. Be alert. Be proactive and recognize. I'm not going to speak to that woman at the gas station. Why? Because I love my family. I don't want to dishonor my Savior. I'm going to have the TVs unplugged in the hotel room if I'm tempted to turn on something that I know my eyes should not look at. Be proactive because sin will take you farther than you plan to go. Sin will keep you there longer than you plan to stay and it will cost you more than you plan to give. But beloved, we belong to God and together we're to strive to pursue the purity and peace of God's church. Let's pray for his help right now. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Father, we know that we're living in a culture that glories in abominations. Lord, we need compassion to those, but we also, Lord, need conviction for us to live in purity. Jesus, we pray that our church would be a safe place to work through struggles and a healing place for the hurts of families. Put our lives back together in you. Teach us as your people to live as children of light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.